Hey moms, I'm Taryn, and I'm sure I'm not alone when I say that motherhood is a lot harder than I expected it to be. Of course I knew that there would be long sleepless nights and that my adorable baby would soon turn into a snack-obsessed toddler, but I wasn't prepared for the really hard stuff that isn't always talked about. The long NICU stays that we had, the mom guilt, or the constant worry as to whether or not I'm raising my kids to be kind, independent, and compassionate. Here at the Messy Mama Pod, my goal is to not only make you feel like you aren't alone, but to truly show you. You're going to be hearing from some incredible moms who are rising through some really difficult times in motherhood, and from guests who have made it their mission to spread awareness and education to make motherhood a little bit more joyful and inclusive. I live off of dry shampoo, and it is a complete guess as to whether my kids even have clothes on right now. So, if you're anything like me, welcome to the mess. And remember, messy can be beautiful. This week's sponsor will really resonate with all of you mamas who battle with finding cute, comfy shoes that actually stay on your baby's feet. Jamie started her business, Parker and Posey, after falling in love with making her oldest child shoes almost 12 years ago. She hand-makes soft-soled baby shoes using organic bamboo for the lining and suede for the toes and soles. Something that I think is so cool is that Jamie uses thrifted and upcycled clothing and other suede items, so each piece that she creates is made with a lot of thought, planning, and love. I'm slowly growing my collection of these shoes for Reese because her and I both love them. She's constantly going to her room, finding a pair, and scooting them out so that I can put them on for her. The elastic ankle makes them super easy and quick to put on, but actually keeps them on these small, busy feet. I personally love the soft, neutral color palette that Jamie uses and the cute lace detail that can be added and add such a subtle feminine touch. I've used these for Reese all summer and absolutely love the weight of them and just grabbed another pair for fall, which I know will also be perfect. If you want to take a peek, you can find them on Instagram by searching at Parker and Posey or by visiting their website, www.parkerandposey.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Messy Mama podcast. I'm just really grateful for today's guest, Laura. Um, and this episode's kind of been in the works since I first found her on Instagram. Um, and her page, which was all about advocating for her daughter, Lucy. So if you're with me on Instagram, you probably saw me sharing about their page, Life for Lucy. And our guest today, Laura, is Lucy's mama. So Lucy is currently four and a half months old, but when she was just five weeks old, she was officially diagnosed with a really rare disease called SMA. um, And Lucy specifically has type one. So the purpose of today's episode is really to educate on SMA. SMA and what it is and why the $2.8 million drug that Lucy is currently receiving is so crucial. So near the end of the episode, we're also going to kind of get into um, some details and Laura's going to give us some strategies as moms to really help bring awareness to this disease and the importance of the early diagnosis, which can just completely change the trajectory of so many kiddos' lives. Um, And I know that she's really going to give us kind of something tangible to leave with and um, just really kind of help make change. So thanks so much for being here, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be a really kind of a fun episode um, and very educational. And I love how you've really made it your mission um, Lucy is currently in the thick of kind of getting ready to get her Zolgesma 
Um, but I love how you just continue to advocate. And when we were talking, you were like, yes, anything I can do to bring awareness to this and help the other kids and families that are going through this. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, we stumbled upon a community and a community that needs a lot of voices and needs a lot of awareness and needs a lot of help. And so, you know, we received a lot of help and we want everybody to feel that same way and, and have the same hope that we have too. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that that's so important and, and so, so special. So before we kind of dive into it, why don't you give us just a little overview of you and your family? Um, and then we can kind of go from there. Uh, so I, we live in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, my husband and I, and we have a three-year-old son named Sullivan and our daughter who's now four and a half months. And her name is Lucy. We're originally from Ontario, but found, fell in love with the ocean and found ourselves to the West coast. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I love Lucy. We were talking earlier and we had a trip out there a couple of years ago and I seriously like if there was a place that we could live, it would be BC. So we might become neighbors. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we can do it, anybody can do it. It's uh, it's a wonderful place to be, but of course, uh, hard to be away from family and friends. Oh, totally. Yeah. So you have the cutest little boy, Sullivan. He is seriously so adorable. Um, when you found out that you were pregnant with Lucy and you were kind of going through your pregnancy, are there any... Um, what would they be called? Like any symptoms or was there any kind of screening for SMA or did you find out that Lucy had SMA while you were pregnant or how did that pregnancy kind of look? Uh, pregnancy was really normal. Um, very similar, maybe slightly worse than with my son, but uh, it was very normal and there was no of SMA or screening for it. I know that you can have screening for it. And they've told us if we were to get pregnant again, um, that they could screen in utero to see if uh, a baby has SMA, but it's just not something that they offer widely mm-hmm. because it is considered a rare disease. So we had no idea until she was diagnosed after she was born that there was anything wrong with her. Okay. Interesting. So um, you, Lucy was diagnosed at five weeks, correct? Yeah. She was uh, just over five weeks when she was diagnosed or just... Yeah, right at five weeks, I guess it was. Okay. Uh, but we started to know symptoms or see symptoms around two to three weeks. Okay. And what were those symptoms? She came out of the womb, like sucking her thumb. She was like ready right there for it. And she just like was super content to, to suck her thumb for the first few weeks. And that was the first thing that we noticed is she stopped being able to bring her hand to her mouth and she seemed to be exhausted and then from there it she couldn't move her limbs and then she started to struggle feeding and then we started to notice she was struggling with breathing as well so it became really scary really really quick no kidding oh my gosh and so even those like I feel like thinking it seems so long ago my little girl is only like 15 months but I'm like what was it like with a newborn but Mm -hmm. really like subtle things right like how long did it kind of take for you to be like oh okay she's not sucking her thumb anymore or like oh she's having issues feeding like what was that timeline kind of like definitely like a few weeks it it I mean especially when you have you have the experience of 
having a newborn before. So you kind of know what a healthy newborn looks like. However, you also have a toddler that's extremely distracting. So we initially noticed some things, but I honestly had a little bit of like newborn amnesia and I was like, well, maybe that's normal. And it wasn't really until our midwives, uh, it was a routine uh, appointment with our midwives and they did all of her reflexes Mm. and noticed that she really lacked a startle reflex and um, she she wasn't kind of hitting the milestones at three-ish weeks that she was supposed to. So they kind of confirmed some of our suspicions and they referred us to a pediatrician. And then also we're really thankful that one of our best friends is a pediatrician. So we Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, got them to help us understand what we were seeing and if it was normal or if it was something to be concerned about. And so the ball just got rolling there and and once we saw our actual pediatrician she recommended we see neurology right away okay so what was it like when that was confirmed because I think that like as you're talking about it it can seem so um you know just normal right like you're just going through this like oh Mm -hmm. yeah my child is maybe not developing properly and I know this from experience and you and I were talking about it when you kind of get into that medical world things are just so eye-opening so what was it like for you when your suspicions were confirmed it was it was really heavy like um you know you're three weeks postpartum and I was I was so carefree-ish, as as carefree as you can be in a global pandemic with a newborn. But I, you know, had that second time mama confidence. And I walked into that midwife appointment being slightly concerned about the movement, but really not, you know, thinking anything of it. And once they started to point things out to me and confirm that for me, I, like my whole world came crashing down and I just became like uh, an emotional hairball. I was already devastated. Like my, I would say like my mama instincts kicked in then. And I was, and I immediately knew that something was really wrong Mm -hmm. and just dealing with that and waiting for healthcare professionals. Like it takes time to see the right people. And, and I would say like, that was the hardest part. It was waiting, not knowing and, and my husband kept asking the question, is there a timeline? Like, is this something that we need to know as soon as possible to have the best outcome? And that was the hardest part, knowing that time was going on without us understanding what was wrong with her and not being able to like get treatment. Um, so it was, it was really, really tough. Yeah. And I think like, one of the really beautiful things of doing this podcast is I've talked to so many other medical mamas and that's like the overwhelming comment is that time is going by and you just feel like you're standing still because appointments take time. And um, I know that you guys have been doing physio and all of that sort of thing. And even those kind of appointments, they take time. You're not doing everything. And as the mom, you just feel like, you know, your child needs this help and there's nothing worse than being like, you can't give it to them. You, you are just waiting. And I know that that's something that a lot of medical moms and myself can relate to. Yeah, absolutely. And accessing resources during COVID has been so challenging. So 
just having that slow things down like it's it was its own set of devastation just not being able to I mean any mom like if you can't help your child yeah that's really tough yeah totally and then adding a global pandemic just does not help anything for anyone no for sure and and you like you trust the medical system so much or maybe I do and I take that for granted that sometimes I'm like I have too much faith in the process and we've really found through this whole experience that you can have faith in the process and respect the medical professionals and still you need to advocate for your baby because you know our initial pediatrician appointment wasn't for like multiple weeks after the midwife had recognized something and we advocated it that it be as quickly as possible. And then we advocated to go right to the ER to see a neurologist because we felt like an early diagnosis was important. Um, and it turned out to be critical in, in Lucy's condition. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No kidding. And I, yeah, I could not agree more with you. So you make it to your pediatrician appointment. And at that point, have you seen Actually, can we rewind a little bit? Can we Mm -hmm. kind of talk a little bit about what SMA is? Like, what even occurs with it? I think just so that our listeners can kind of understand before we kind of get into that part of it. For sure. I know. I, um, I just learned about it, but I already feel like I take it for granted that everybody should know about it. Um, But so Lucy was diagnosed with SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. And there's multiple different types of of the disease, but she has type what's considered type one right now. Um, And that's anything that is diagnosed prior to six months of age. And it's the most severe form of SMA. And SMA is a it's a degenerative degenerative neuromuscular disease. So it is considered a rare um, a rare disease, and it's genetic. So it means that my partner and I are both carriers, and we didn't know it. Um, and uh, it basically affects her ability to supply her muscles with the appropriate uh, protein. So her her nerve cells don't function properly she's missing a gene um and so her muscles start to atrophy over time because they don't have enough like food per se so that's you know very much simplifying it and I will put the disclaimer that I'm not a scientist oh I'm a biologist but I'm not um, a medical scientist um but uh but yeah so SMA with SMA from birth, they start to atrophy. So early diagnosis is really key because the sooner you diagnose, the sooner you can treat, the sooner you stop the progression of the disease. Okay. So once um, Lucy, but kids with SMA get that certain medication, then they should essentially like, she will be fine. So that's a question we get a lot as we've started to like share Lucy's story and and advocate for what SMA is. Um, There is no cure. SMA is something that has been um, a really devastating diagnosis in the past. Not that it it wasn't when we got it. It still was very devastating. But 
Um, there never used to be any treatment for it. And SMA type one was the number one genetic um, reason for infant mortality. Um, and basically there was no way to treat it. So babies would just slowly decline. Um, and most babies with SMA type one wouldn't live past their second birthday. So, um, that's kind of where it used to be. And then very recently there's some treatments that have become available. So there's three, um, main treatments that are on the market right now, but I know that there's a lot that are in the works. So um, all three of these treatments are changing the shape of what SMA looks like and are giving lots of new hope to parents and, and to children and, and to different individuals with SMA because even adults can have SMA, can be diagnosed with SMA. Um, but none of the treatments are a cure yet they can stop the progression of the disease or slow down the progression of the disease. But um, without, without having a full infrastructure and, um, you know, testing and finding out uh, a diagnosis before you see symptoms and treating before you see symptoms, they can't be considered a cure because um, they don't reverse any of the damage that's done prior to the treatment. Right. Okay. That makes so that sense. was really long winded, but hopefully no, makes sense. that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So in that period from when you went to your midwives until you saw the pediatrician, did you, was Lucy still kind of regressing then? Did you still notice different symptoms kind of come up? Yeah, it was really rapid. Like, she was a little lethargic and slow moving at the midwife appointment. And then it was about a week and a half until we saw the pediatrician. And in that timeline, she completely stopped moving and could barely breathe. Oh my so God. it was really, really quick. Yeah. So it, and so essentially SMA, and I'm just trying to explain, like, kind of process it through my own mm -hmm. brain also for the listener so it's attacking her muscles which I think a lot of times we would forget that that also would control the breathing directly and the feeding yeah for sure when I when I first noticed that there was something different and maybe I consulted Dr. Google a little bit <laughs> and um you know I definitely thought I was like, oh, wow, she's not going to be able to move like a regular child can move. And then once I started to learn more about the diagnosis, I realized that those thoughts and fears I had, not that they weren't valid, but that they didn't even scratch the level of like how critical this diagnosis was. Um, because the important things like you require muscles for every function in life, digestion, mm -hmm breathing, feeding, swallowing, um, you know, obviously moving. And those are all so important. So um, the breathing and the feeding are something that is, is extremely life threatening. And some of our biggest concerns at the time of her diagnosis, and then also, obviously moving forward. Right. Yeah, I know. I think that it's so, um, you know, sometimes I think that it's so easy to, as say, even I'll use myself as an example, we don't know each other, we're Instagram, you know, Instagram friends. And when we see moms who are advocating for their kids, or you hear of a diagnosis, 
and you think about it, but then our life unfortunately continues to go on where you're like in it. Right. And Mm -hmm. I know I felt like that a lot when I was in the NICU with my kids, like the outside world is just going on, but you're at home with a baby who's weeks old and you're watching the progression of the disease and you're thinking about it and you're living it and you're fighting it. Um, So I can really relate to that feeling of like, I'm sure loneliness, like within that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say like, you know, I think that everybody in COVID times is a little bit lonelier Um, and um, having such a severe diagnosis mm-hmm. is definitely lonely. And we, we needed to do some searching to find what that community was and, and who, who else out there has this and, and can give us some perspective and maybe give us a little bit of hope. Um, and also there's a, a grieving period. Like mm-hmm. the minute we heard that diagnosis, we immediately were grieving the life that we had imagined for her and the life that we had imagined for ourselves as our family. And, you know, even our son, when you bring another child in, you, you have this picture of what a sibling will be like for him and what his life will be like. And we know this impacts it as well. So just even dealing with grief and grief can be extremely lonely as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, I can relate to that so much. And I think something that's so normal that comes along with that is the guilt. um, And especially when you're adding another child into that mix, I can relate to that a lot, like a lot. So from the time that you were um, at your, um, or sorry, going to the pediatrician appointment, what was that process kind of like? Like you were talking about how you advocated and you got in within that kind of week to week and a half period. And so is that kind of when the start of all the testing happened? Yeah, you know, our pediatrician is, is amazing. And, and she took us on, um, I think after (laughs) she, she made an appointment for us, which was really great. Um, and we were really concerned parents and we advocated and we kept asking the question about timeline. And I think that that was really important because, um, it helped her to, to advocate for us as well. So, um, it was actually the next day she gave me a call and she said, that she had spoken with the neurology team at BC Children's and that they would be willing to see us if we went through the ER. And I think that she had assessed Lucy's breathing at at the time of our appointment and was concerned, really concerned. So it was actually the next day that we went to the ER and then we started testing. We were immediately admitted and we did every test you can possibly think of, or I could possibly think of. (laughs) And, um, and, we were admitted on a Friday and we got a potential diagnosis on Tuesday and a confirmed diagnosis on the Wednesday. So we're really thankful the team, like, I think that that's a really quick turnaround for a diagnosis, mm-hmm. less than a week. Um, and, and it felt like forever for us, but I, I recognize that it could be so much, so much worse. Yeah. And so at that point, um, like I see now, a lot of what you share is Lucy's breathing machine that she wears. So was there a point or like during that time, did her breathing kind of start to decline for, or like, and she needed that extra support kind of during that testing period? Yeah. So once we got confirmation through the genetic testing that, that she 
did have SMA, um, the ball just like accelerated. So this isn't a new disease. And uh, unfortunately, many people have been inflicted by it. But I know that like that has gotten us to this point in history where we have a lot of more resources and knowledge about it. And our doctors are amazing. And they immediately were like, okay, these are the resources that you're going to need to learn in order to support Lucy. And I, um, one of the things right away was learning the BiPAP machine. And they did say that it wasn't 100% critical at that point. They said that within weeks, it would be. And if we needed more time to process, we could take time before learning it. And we decided to dive right in um, that day to learn the BiPAP machine and to have her start to use it, which I will say was extremely hard on us emotionally uh, because, you know, she's only five weeks old and she's still so little and um, she hates the BiPAP. And so she struggles and cries. And so, you know, and it's a medical machine that's now put on your, your, you know, what you think is a perfect newborn. So Mm -hmm. uh, that was really challenging emotionally, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that we kind of dove right into it. So that was the first thing um, that they did. And then the second thing was a physio assessment. So just assessing like what her baseline is, what can she do so that we can track her progress as, um, the disease progresses, but also as she seeks treatment. Yeah. At that time, when you're learning all of that stuff, I can only imagine like the absolute whirlwind, especially because this is a rare disease and it isn't something that you probably, or I know that you've mentioned you really didn't know about before that. So at that point, what was your fear? Like, what was your, where was your mind going as you were kind of doing this or? Uh, It was really dark. Um, I had tried to stay away from Dr. Google, um, because I know that it just gives anxiety and it doesn't necessarily paint a lot of hope or give accurate information all the time. But once we received the diagnosis, they didn't, they just told us that she might, that she likely has SMA. And then they recommended that we look up what that is. And so my husband and I sat down and we searched SMA in Google And the first thing that came up was the different types. And we literally, the description is just like when it's diagnosed, what babies are or aren't able to do. And so type one is diagnosed prior to six months and babies will never be able to sit or hold their head up or move on their own. And then the next line is what the life expectancy is. And so we read those three things and then reading the words, um, babies rarely live to the age of two um, was definitely the hardest thing I've ever read Um, because I never imagined that something that she could have something so life-threatening even though I knew she was sick Um, and so just reading that and letting that sink in it was so shocking and devastating and completely you know, blew us away. Like we just, we looked down at her and she was struggling to move and was struggling to breathe, but she still looked so normal, so perfect, Mm -hmm. just like a a newborn. So, and she was so fresh. So it it was really just shocking and hard to process. 
as you're saying this, I'm just trying to imagine it. And I think also going through it so quickly from, you know, her being three weeks old to five weeks old is such a short period of time. And just Mm -hmm. to have your entire vision. And like you said, that you're having to grieve um, what you, what the life you had planned for her was in your family and all of that. And it was such a fast, short period of time for you. It was absolutely. And um, I think I'm sure it's with any diagnosis or even like any like medical experience with children it's like you have to make decisions so quickly so we immediately had to learn how to use the the BiPAP the breathing machine we had to do a feeding study to see if she was able to swallow because she was being breastfed at the time Um, and we had to immediately decide whether or not we wanted to treat her and we really knew nothing about what the disease was in the first place um and so having to jump into those big decisions is, is really scary. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Because yeah, I just feel like you would just be kind of like shooting in the dark almost. Yeah. A little bit. I mean, you have to put a lot of faith in the, the medical team and the people that you have, you don't know, you met them like a day, day ago. Yeah, totally. And so at that point, what did treatment look like? So uh, there is three treatments that are like widely on the market. Only one of them is approved in Canada. So that's called Spinraza. And uh, it's something that is still quite new. It's only been available or approved by Health Canada, I think since 2016, 2017. And uh, it it was really only like rolled out in British Columbia uh, very recently. I think that somebody recently told me that it was just being covered by provincial healthcare as of March of 2020. Oh, so it's, it's all really new. Um, so initially that's what our doctor focused on because that's what avail- is available to us. And um, it in many respects is miraculous because it has helped babies to live pa- way past their life expectancy. And it has helped babies with type one to be able to sit and um, hold their head up and, you know, move in ways that they could never move. Um, So it's, uh, it's pretty miraculous in in that respect, but it's uh, a little scary because it's uh, an injection in the spine. It's a spinal tap and there's loading doses. And then every four months she would get a spinal tap for the rest of her life. Wow. Um, so that was the first treatment they focused on, but our doctor did mention that there are other treatments that are approved in the U S and other countries, but are just not approved in Canada yet. And so that's Zolgensma, which is the gene therapy and, um, as well as another treatment called Rizdaplan, which is an oral treatment that works kind of like Spinraza. Okay. And so at that time, did they tell you the cost of Zolgen or Zolgen? Oh, Zolgensma. I know it's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a mouthful. Um, I, our doctors did say that uh, there are treatments available, and they're all really expensive because um, they are all really expensive. But we're lucky in Canada; we have socialized healthcare, and the province uh, approved 
Spinraza and pays for Spinraza, which is amazing, but it's also a very, very expensive treatment. Um, they did say that, you know, Zolgensma was the most expensive drug in the world. Uh, and that's just not a, not a thing I thought about before. Um, and not something you want for treatment for your child. No. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize that it was the most expensive in the world. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So at that point, um, so she starts the treatment that is covered in British Columbia and you guys are essentially sent home. Yeah. Um, we were there for, uh, we were in the hospital for a week and we, uh, wanted to go home because we had our three-year-old at home and we wanted to go home because it was mother's day and we didn't want to be in the hospital for mother's day or I didn't want to. And, um, so we went home on a Friday, but our treatment, our first day of treatment was going to be that following Monday. So it was a quick turnaround. We just wanted to be home for the weekend. Yeah. And so but they- we went home with all of the medical equipment, right? So you and, came home with like the BiPAP machine and... And an oximeter to measure the oxygen levels overnight. Oh my gosh. That's a lot. It's like a hospital room in your home, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely was bringing like a piece of the hospital home. Yeah. It wasn't so, that picturesque motherhood where you're, you know, like sitting in your rocking chair with your organic linens and you're <laughs> breastfeeding your child and birds are uh, singing around you. I can relate to that so much. You leave the hospital um, and you kind of go back and start your treatment plan on that Monday. Um, what has life kind of been like since then in terms of Lucy's treatment, maybe the progression of the disease? Does that um, once she started getting that medication, did the progression of it kind of stop? Does it kind of halted or how has that been yeah they they warned us that uh she would decline more before she got better but we were very fortunate she got that that treatment so so quickly on that monday and we started to notice uh positive effects of it right away it stabilized her she didn't she never declined from that point uh in in her breathing or and her moving and she just started to slowly improve in both of those um respects the only thing that did decline or not the only thing but the the main thing that did decline or we were just unaware of before was her feeding so initially they assessed her feeding and they assessed you know um the breastfeeding and they said that it was perfectly safe and it was fine and then we went in for a feeding study at 10 weeks and she failed um meaning she was silently aspirating or silently taking breast milk into her lungs instead of swallowing it and that was another kind of level of you know again setback and a little bit of a devastation And um, so that was the only thing that didn't immediately improve. And that led us to need a a G-tube surgery, implanting a G-tube the following week. Right. And for the listeners who don't know what that is, it's essentially a line that goes directly into her belly. 
Um, and then you've probably seen on really on TV shows or, or something. We did it in the NICU differently because our G tubes were NG tubes orally through the nose. Um, and then you feed Lucy from essentially, do you use like a, like a syringe? Is that how yours hooks up? Yeah, we have a pump so we can okay. feed it through a bag and a pump, but we also can do what they call a bolus feed, which is mm. the, the syringe and we can do gravity or, or pushing the, the breast milk through the tube, through the syringe. Yeah. So lots, lots of options. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, that in itself would be such a huge learning curve too. So your whole, I mean, learning like the BiPAP machine and um, you do physio at home with her as well. Mm-hmm. And so what is that physio like? Yeah, so really early on, you know, our doctor like impressed on us that this would be a long road to recovery, if you can call it recovery, um, or maybe just stability. And it was going to need a lot of different things. Treatment was one of them. Uh, you know, all of the medical equipment that we have was another and then physio is really, really important, mm. getting her body moving and moving her body so that when she does develop more strength, hopefully thanks to the medication, that she'll still have muscles there, that they won't have atrophied, or she'll still have nerves. Uh, they've, they told us early on that um, time is, is neurons or nerve cells. Um, so once those die unfortunately you can't recover them so just keeping them active uh, was really important so immediately we sought out a private physio in our community and thankfully there was one who has seen SMA patients before and she's fantastic and she taught us how to be like little mama and data physios at home so that we could continually be doing physio with Lucy. Which I think is so important. And when healthcare providers take that extra step to really make you feel like involved and very important, I, Mm -hmm. I know that that just makes you feel so much more just accomplished. Oh, yeah, we we feel so lucky. Our Lucy's doctors are amazing. And they have great bedside manner. And they took the time to explain things and answer all of our a million questions. Um, And, and that was so important, because everything was overwhelming initially and it just took time to process and put those pieces together so that we can then advocate and help Lucy do the best that she can. Yes. Yes. Okay. So at what point were you like, you know what, this medication Zolgensma, I hope I'm saying that correctly. It came out easier that time anyways, um, is $2.8 million dollars. And we're going to go for it. Like we are doing this and getting it for Lucy. Like when did that happen? Um, there was a little bit of our process there. First we found out about it and we were like, wow, we, there's no possible way. Then we, you know, did a little searching. And like I said earlier, we were searching for what our community looked like and other parents who were going through this. And one of the things that we were searching for was what, could Lucy's life look like in five months, in a year, in two years, maybe. And that was a really scary process. But it also led us to a few other parents in Canada that were 
advocating for their babies with SMA and that were fundraising for Zolgensma. And it really, you know, it, it gave us a little bit of hope and it showed us that, wow, people are actually doing this and they're trying and it looks like they're, they're succeeding. And so the steps were figuring out if Lucy was a candidate for the, the drug first off and learning a little bit more about it. And I will say that that took me time because every time I opened up Google to look at anything that had to do with SMA or Spinraza, the drug that she was on, or Zolgensma, I immediately took a step back into like some pretty dark grief and um, depression. It was so much easier to sit in denial and just to look at my baby and she looked in moments she looked really healthy and just to pretend that she was instead of looking to see what her future would look like. So that whole process, it was a little bit of a step back and then a step forward and a step back and a step forward. Um, and then once we tested her blood to see if she had any antibodies that could fight off the virus that, that gives the, the new gene and the, the genetic therapy, once we found out that she was a good candidate for Zolgensma, it was a hot minute before we were like, well, we have to do this. We have to at least try. Yeah. It does not feel good to sit there and not do everything that you possibly can for your child, even if it seems impossible. Yeah, that's right. And gosh, like 2.8 million is daunting. I remember right when I found your page, you had just started it. And I remember being like, oh my goodness, 2.8 million. And seriously, Laura, all of a sudden I would just like check. <laughs> I would be laying in bed at night and be like, oh, I wonder what their um, GoFundMe is up to. And it was just climbing and climbing and climbing. And then um, um, we had talked about a little bit earlier, Ashley from Millie's Little Closet. I really kind of started to follow even deeper there when she was doing this, the online auction can you talk a little bit about just what that was like for you as the mama, maybe feeling like $2.8 million was really, really out of reach at one point to all of a sudden being like, okay, this might be our reality. Yeah. So I think that once we decided that we needed to do this, we kind of sat down and we were like, okay, how do we do this? And we, treated it a little bit like a little bit like work. So uh, we figured out like, what are the things that might make the success? Who do we know that can help us in that? Mm -hmm. So um, we were so fortunate to have amazing, like we have amazing network and community of people that we already knew that had talents. So our, our great friend who helped us create that video of Lucy to help mm -hmm. share her story, which I think was really key to show people mm -hmm. what we were struggling with and, and what we needed. And, um, and then also finding people who are really great at communications and talking to media and that could give me some pointers on social media because although I'm a millennial, I'm an older millennial <laughs> and I was not, um, I'm not savvy on that. Not that I am now, but, um, but yeah, I needed some help. And then other people who had talents or had networks of people that they could individually reach out to. So we spent about a week making resources, building a little social media platform and, and really thinking about what our strategy could be before we hit the ground running. 
And then once we hit the ground running, I would say that we tried to leave no stone unturned. We tried every fundraising strategy that we could possibly think of from, you know, putting jars in uh, local community stores with Lucy's face on them to collect change, to uh, having people host car washes for us, to selling our own things and having other people sell their things, um, to, to even initiating like a, a text to donate campaign. Uh, so we, we tried to do anything we possibly could. And I would say that we did none of it alone. We started it kind of alone, but the minute people responded to Lucy's story, the most amazing people like Ashley from Millie's Little Closet and so many other small shops and businesses came to support and came with great ideas and really amplified our fundraising efforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, social media, and I always talk about this, how social media can be used in horrific ways, but my goodness, when it is used for good, it is so powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, I, I didn't even know what I expected the response to be, but that response was incredible. Just yeah. I can't even imagine how overwhelming that would have been. Yeah, it was, it was very overwhelming. It was very busy. We did not sleep at all in the whole time we were fundraising. Um, And uh, you know, I definitely, it was stressful, but just even hearing other people's stories and, and why they felt compelled to donate, whether or not they knew somebody with SMA or they lost somebody with SMA or they were another medical mama or they were just a mom and they could, or a dad and they could understand, you know, how hard it would be to, to lose a child or to, to have an unhealthy child. Um, all of words of encouragement, it all helped us to move forward and to be motivated to do whatever we could to help Lucy. Yeah, my gosh. So at this point in time, you guys have raised the money and you are on kind of the journey now of Lucy receiving Joel Zen- Zol Jensma. I swear I'm going to get that word by the end of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to throw a plot twist in there. Um, okay. So I didn't know you didn't know this, but um, we didn't raise the full amount. There, we entered into, as all the parents have entered into um, what's called a managed access program through the okay. drug company. And it works as a lottery system and it's worldwide. And so the chances of, you know, being selected are very, very low. But um, at the beginning of August, we found out that Lucy had been selected. Oh, my Through the managed access program to receive Zolgensma. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Worldwide. Worldwide. And, And I truly believe that that would not have happened without all of the efforts of everyone involved. Um, I know some might not believe that, but I definitely um, believe that, that that was all part of the process. So Lucy's been selected. And so now you're basically going ahead with getting her Zolgensma. Yeah. So what does that look like? So, um, it's still a process. It takes time. Um, and, uh, our, our doctors have been, um, working with the drug company, and the hospital 
to set up how we can deliver treatment at BC Children's here in Vancouver. Mm. It's not something that they've done before because this is so new. Uh, and so, of course, there's some administrative hoops to jump through and, and some logistical ho hoops to jump through. And so they're just, they're, they're processing all of that, but we've definitely gotten the ball rolling. And um, once they figure all of that out, then we have to retest Lucy's blood, which we actually did yesterday. And they send that off, I believe it's to Amsterdam, and test for those antibodies to make sure that she's still, uh, she's still a good candidate for the treatment. And, uh, and then she has to be completely healthy. So uh, they also test a lot of other things in her blood to make sure that, that she's healthy enough to receive the treatment. And then we have uh, an appointment later on this week to go over all of her physio assessments again so that we can create a new benchmark because she's getting a new treatment and we really want to see, you know, what outcomes she has from that. Yeah. And also just to assess, you know, her overall health with her neuromuscular doctors and also to, to assess her heart health with the cardiologist. So that's happening this week as well. And then um, she has to start a steroid to suppress her immune system before she starts the treatment. So we're hopeful that she'll be able to receive the treatment in early September. Okay, gosh, I just, yeah, everything just takes time. Everything is just in the medical world is such a process. It, it, it absolutely does. And that time is excruciating, but um, we are just trying to enjoy the process and, and be excited that she's receiving Zolgensma. Yeah, my gosh. So one of the things and to kind of, um, I think this is such a really incredibly important kind of aspect to finish and wrap up this episode with. And one of the things that you talk about and, and that you mentioned was really important for you to advocate on this podcast episode um, is about newborn screening and just even talking about how every mom can really make a difference in kind of creating that or making that the norm. So what is your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah. And I think that like anybody listening to this, they might have some like a similar story that they're connecting with, but even if they're not this, like you don't know who this disease could impact. It is a rare disease, but it's actually relatively common, but one in 40 people are carriers. Wow. And if you have, if your partner and you are a carrier, you have a 25% chance of having a baby with SMA. And, um, so it makes, you know, the odds not that rare. And uh, it's also a degenerative disease. So it means that it, it gets worse and worse over time. So early diagnosis and early treatment changes the outcome drastically. And one of the ways that you achieve that early diagnosis and early treatment is having newborn screening. So every baby you know right in that, he in that heel prick that you get at birth they can test for SMA and they can communicate and catch it before the baby starts to deteriorate and show symptoms. And if you can treat before symptoms, it, it, it like just completely changes what the outcome could be. I know there's a, a little baby in the U S right now that is, was born a few days after Lucy and um, they did have newborn screening and they did have access to Zolgensma. And so um, she's four and a half months now and she's 
rolling and she's um, sitting up and she's um, has great head control and can do tummy time, all the things that you expect a four month old to do. And none of the things that Lucy is capable of doing. So um, it's just so important that, you know, we know and we can treat. And um, so right now in Canada, why this applies and and I I feel passionate about it and why I hope other people will be passionate about it too is that right now in Canada the only province that does newborn treatment is Ontario. Wow. Alberta is in the works I believe but um and I we are very passionate about trying to activate this in British Columbia because that's where we live but since healthcare is provincial everybody in their own respective province this is something that that we need to advocate for. Absolutely. Wow. And I think that's one of the things that um, we can so easily take ad- for take advantage of in Canada is that we have like free healthcare, right? And so we just kind of trust that everything is happening the way that it needs to. But I think that once you kind of get into that medical um, journey or situation, you really do realize how we can always be bettering things. And mm-hmm. um, I feel very passionate about a lot, a lot of kind of the different things within the NICU. And I can hear your passion with this too. And so I really do hope that moms advocate for this. So what is something that the mama listening right now can do to add SMA to the newborn screening? So um, we're still navigating what exactly is, is going to make that happen. But I would say like reaching out and maybe following somebody in the SMA community because they will know the best. So maybe right. in your respective community. But um, one thing that is, is going to help in, in getting this on the newborn screen is contacting your local government and your provincial government and telling them that that it's important to you. So really just writing them a letter, calling them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few people in the SMA community that have um, letters, letter templates. Okay. And, um, and that can be helpful. But honestly, it doesn't have to be a template. It can literally um, just be coming from from you as an individual and and articulating that it's important to you. And politicians are here to serve us the community. And so if it's important to us, it should be important to them. I love that really just using our voice, um, Mm -hmm. I think, is something that can be so scary, but is so underrated. And so I really do hope that if you're listening to this and, and connect to Lucy's story, or any one of the babies that are fighting SMA right now, um, I really highly encourage you and I will put some stuff in the show notes on that too. Um, So to wrap up, I did want to make sure that we mentioned this, there are, um, sorry, two years of age is kind of that crucial time that these babies get the med- the medication, right? Yeah, so Gensma is only approved to be uh, a treatment for babies under the age of two. Okay, and right now there are other babies under the age of two in Canada who are fundraising and trying to raise awareness so that their kids can get this. Um, so we are going to make sure that we put all of these, we know for sure of six babies right now in Canada. So we're going to make sure that we put their names, um, or their Instagram kind of handles in the show notes so that we can all kind of help fundraise, but, um, watching you guys fundraise for Lucy and just advocate and sharing your story and just so openly and to 
of course, help Lucy get Zolgensma, but again, just your passion with just helping like other babies prevent this or not necessarily prevent, but get the treatment early, I think is just really, really incredible. Um, I know I'm so grateful for you coming on here. And I know that so many of the moms in the Messy Mama community are going to really, really just relate to this. So thank you so much, Laura, for taking the time and, um, and doing this and hanging out with me for this little bit. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on and giving us an opportunity to share, you know, what we've gone through in our story with Lucy and, and help to advocate for this community as well. Hey mama, really quick before you sign out, I just really wanted to reach out and ask for your help. As a mom, I can't even imagine the feeling that Laura and so many other moms have felt hearing that the medication that their babies need in order to survive costs almost $3 million. That's where we come in. I have linked some of the other Canadian SMA babies in the show notes and I just ask that if you have the means and feel compelled to visit their page and see how you can donate. If you aren't in a financial spot to do so, that's totally fine and I so get that. Even just sharing their information or even just this podcast episode can help so much. We need their pages to go viral so that these babies can have a life that they deserve. (laughs) 